Yeah. Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke with Sebastian Junger. Sebastian is an American journalist, author and filmmaker. He's known for his books The Perfect Storm, A True Story of Men Against the Sea, War and Tribe. His latest book is called Freedom and it's out now. In our conversation we touched on how the social models we create should be reflective of our evolutionary history, taking advantage of our technological and medical advancement, but not using those advances to create more and more profit for elite organisations and individuals at the top of social pyramids. It was a fantastic conversation you are gone i love it now time for comments did you enjoy the last podcast with luke kemp handsome luke kemp as he's become known as by me scarlet fire says fascism should more appropriately be called corporatism because it's a merger of state and corporate power and that's by a little guy named benito mussolini a go-getter who saw an opportunity in life and made it work but sadly it was through the machinery of fascism and if you see that famous footage of him on the balcony you can't help but think this guy's gotten a bit carried away well-rounded says the uh was that the name of the person well-rounded yeah their username his point resonates true she says of luke kemp straight away i look at the nhs app and its utility in recent years it added little solution to the problem, but was obviously useful for mass data collection. I've never felt so odd with today's systems and politicians. Thanks, well-rounded. Well, Jenny Mayfin, have you been... Good, how are you? Why are you asking me like that Because I feel like I don't ask you, you always ask me. I'm all right, still intermittent fasting, still vegan, still a father of two kids. You got a bit of a cold? I had a cold. Your voice sounds deeper when you have a cold. Nicer? Just deeper. Does that mean nice? Sometimes I think it does, yeah. I like a nice deep voice. Yeah. This cold, there was two days of this cold where it was a pain in the arse. Friday and Saturday. The rest of it was pretty That's much right, okay. Isn't it? Sometimes it's nice to surrender to a cold, isn't it? To sort of bundle yourself up all sweet. Mm. No? I don't know. When was you last sick? You're never anything but sick, are you? Oh, well, I'm never sick. I've all the years I've worked for you. Let me think Have about I, those years. I took one sick day. Hold on, I'm just going back in my mind <laughs> over the years you've worked for me. <laughs> pain, despair, <laughs> suffering, <laughs> horror, horror, that's horror. <laughs> I did take a sick day once. What was wrong you with you? You didn't like again? it. I don't want to say. It was stress related, I think. <laughs> stress, code name, lazy bones. Code name, malingara. Uh, it was in LA. Code name, nutter. Where did you go nuts in LA? No, I just woke, one day just couldn't do anything. I felt weird. I felt. What about when we all got coronavirus? Yeah, that was the weird. Pandemic? We had coronavirus. We each had a different version of it. What version did you have? The middle one. And what I have? The easiest one. Tough guy. Fought it off. And Charlie had really bad COVID. Yeah, we all had a bit of COVID, and we all we all fought it as gallantly as we could. It was lucky, it wasn't it, that we all got sick at the same time? Thank God, because otherwise I'd have noticed your lazy bones <laughs> once again. That's what I thought the whole time. I was like, oh, I'm glad Russell's sick too. <laughs> <laughs> We're all sick together. Solidarity. Yeah. What have you been doing this week? Done anything? Did I'm going go to down? a gig tonight. Who with? What for? It's an artist called Griff. Griff. Where are you going to go see Griff? Shepherd's Bush Empire. Good venue. Yeah. Who are you going with? People in, who know her. What do you mean by that? What do you mean? What do I mean by that? I don't want their relationship to her. I want well, their relationship to you. People and, who know her. Well, they're my friends and they know her. So I got free tickets. So I was like, okay, I'll go. When did you make friends with these friends, Jen? Talk like years ago, like four or five years ago. What was the introductory moment? When did these people move from the sensible state of not being your friends <laughs> to the I more precarious? I'm surprised. I am sceptical of the friendship because I just, I'm like, why are you friends with me? That's what we're all thinking, <laughs> Now, did you meet them in a some sort of institution for people 
with terrible, terrible challenges in there. No. no. Was it in a place where people have no sense of smell? Perhaps they've been... What? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> just jokes, just jokes, Jingo. Oh. Just jokes, Jingo. Yeah. I'm going to go opera again. I can't Why? Get of it. I'm addicted. But you know what's happening. What? Nothing happens. Uh, Everyone just comes out I don't out, like seeing the same thing twice. No. Mm. Mm. No, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be nice. This thing is so beautiful. You just sit and watch it unfold. It's a meditation. That's what I say about mm. it. Now, banter decanter. Hold on a minute. Let me yeah. see if I can tease you for something. So you've not been on any dates? No, I told you I've given up. All right. No so point. what's it going to be now? Maybe if I need to surround myself with people, someone might appear. Do you not want to experience the sweet intimacy of love? Yeah, but it's not going to happen through a dating app. Oh, well, hold on. Annabelle met someone yeah, who she loves very much, I, I think. Do you love your boyfriend now? You done the I love yous? Yeah. Who did it first? Him? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you wouldn't have done an I love you first. You're cold. Yeah. I can't do dating up. I've been on them for 10 years. Will's got a girlfriend, haven't you, Will? Yeah. Live together? Yep. See? Uh, yeah, well, I had a boyfriend before. But well, then you drove the, him away. The ultimate thing is that you break up eventually. Well, no, don't say that to Will and Annabelle. They've don't got worry, their, it's okay. They've got happy lives. Apparently, 30s and 40s are better. Look, just leave them young. You're both in your 20s. Aren't they so lovely, aren't they, in their 20s? I hated being in my 20s. Jenny, you were awful. I remember you. You should have hated it. I watched it from the outside. You didn't meet people on dating apps. You have to be around people too. I'm from the old days. <laughs> from the old days. In the old days. You're in the bracket, though, of my sphere of age. Am I? Yeah. What do you mean, when they go 30s to 40s? Yeah, but also as old as I would date. Oh. Yeah. How old do you go? Probably 50. How old are you again? 31. Mm. I wouldn't go under 28, though. You're not, oh, it's a lovely 27-year-old. Their jaw is as chiseled as <laughs> no, you like. gross. They'd have to be very old spirits. Jim Morrison was 27 when he died. Yeah, if I was 27 when he was 27, that would have been fine. No, but you're 50. <laughs> I'm 50. In this game. You're 50, and it's a young Jim Morrison. He's about, he's in Paris. He's, yeah, that's okay. He's, in, he's singing like this. I'd probably yeah, use him, obviously. Use it wouldn't. Guy. It wouldn't be for like a partnership, a stable partnership where you're running a family. Jim and... needs stability. That's what I he needs. I know, I'm stable. Well, you've said you're not going to give him it. You're going to use him. Well, what's he going to give what me? That's what drove him to his yeah. death. <laughs> you could have killed him. <laughs> Okay, listen to shout outs, shout outs. Listen to shout outs. For obvious reasons, says Raven Perry, I'm interested in buying your bird shirt. Can you help me out, please? Yeah, Angela made it. How do you find Angela? Angela Bright on Instagram. Angela Bright on Instagram. She made that one, she made the meditation one, and she made two others as well. One that's got a cup on it, and I can't remember the other one because the sleeves were longer. I don't wear it anymore now. I've got the options of the short sleeves. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love those T-shirts, and I would like to do some merchandise deal based on that. Alicia, we've got to do a merchandise deal. <laughs> merchandise deal. <laughs> when are we going to do a merchandise deal? I'm in. I'm on it. All I can hear is clacking, the clacking of nails on a keyboard. No work done. We've got to drive this organisation, and any money raised goes... over her dead body. Oh, I knew it. I knew it, Gareth. These people are bone idle, Jengo. Bone idle, I tell thee. Yeah, we will. So, Angela Bright. Go to Angela Bright's Instagram. She can help you out. Cecil, Callie Dubry. I've voted for both your podcasts. Thank you, Callie Dubry. 
I really enjoy your topics and your ability to maintain a balanced perspective and all the while being the handsomest man in the world. How do you do it, especially, especially around Jenny May Finn? How do you stop yourself from gripping your face in terror? I respect your past adversities and I understand what those adversities are. Being a gay woman who's grown up in apartheid South Africa, I get this and I hear your voice loud and clear. Thanks for your podcast. I hope you win and I wish you all the best. God, that's lovely. Thanks, mate. Well done. I really appreciate your email and well done you realising yourself. Right, should we do this podcast or is it? Oh, I've got right, Above the Noise. Listen to it. It's good. What's the latest one? Um. <laughs> oh, Jen. You're the producer, Jen. Yeah, but once I've completed task, the task is wiped. You wiped the task? Yeah. Because What's I need the last to fit one you did? I need to fit in the next tasks. Alleviating uncertainty and self-doubt. Are you meditating? I did one recently because I felt I wasn't doing it and I felt a bit weird. Jen, when we start this, let's call it <laughs> social organisation. <laughs> oh. huh? That sounds worse. They're simply a social organisation. What's threatening about that, Inspector? When I wake up, though, I yeah. really want to get to work. Well, you could afford me, mate. <laughs> I've seen the quality I'm of your work. I'm the first work. person here every Wednesday. Are you? Yeah, and I was the furthest away. What do you do when you get here? Put the kettle on. No, I've already bought a coffee. Put my laptop down. Go to the Maybe we'll look a bit at the BBC news. Yeah. What an absolute shambles. So, Alicia, where's the, how's the merchandise deals going? <laughs> I've seen no, I've seen no growth or breakthroughs from this woman. Tell all your listeners our secrets. Right, okay. Merchandise. Have you found any remedies for the flatulence? No. <laughs> it's one of the things that's got to be dealt with in, in any person. This can be crippling, crippling social problem. Okay, so, uh, and also, ah, next year there'll be more touring. Did you know about that, Jen? Yeah, I heard you wondering when I'm saying it. <laughs> well, no, I'm, not, I'm not being at all well. I just wonder around. More details to come. Reading's the only show. Are you show. going abroad? I want to go abroad. We're all going to go on a work trip to Lanzarote, to Alan Dolan's Breath Palace, is what we're going to do. <clears throat> yeah. You don't want to go? I don't like doing things in front of people. I get self What like? What like? Any what sort of it? activity where it has to be very serious. Everyone's got their eyes shut and they're laying down. They better have their eyes shut. They will. Jen, no one's going to watch you doing breath exercising in Alan Dolan's Palace of Breath, all right? You don't need to worry. Mm. It's going to be fine. All right, so uh, remember <laughs> to sign up to my mailing list and watch all my YouTube videos. Now, should we go? Should we move on to Sebastian Younger? Do you feel yeah, ready? I'm ready. All right. <laughs> Did you <laughs> like Sebastian? Yeah, yeah, he's a lot different than what I thought. What do you think he was going to be more like? I thought, I was saying, terrible. I thought he was younger. Yeah, because because his surname's Younger. <laughs> Did you think he'd be more Sebastian as well? <laughs> Sebastian was my favourite name growing up. Why? Because of Bell and Sebastian. Who's balance? No. There's a band, there's a cartoon. I, I like it. Where did you get it from? I always wanted to date someone called Sebastian. Why? I don't know. Where did you get it? Or an Ignatius. Who fantasises about a name? Who does that? An Ignatius. I liked that. Ignatius and Sebastian. Where are you going to meet these couple? They were couples? my favourite names. No. Yeah. Who did they... I want to date? I didn't do it by name, Jen. <laughs> I did it by far more decent what, looks? measures. Looks, yeah. yeah. Looks and <laughs> certain physical things. Names. Not names. You can just say call the, anyone you meet, Ignatius. Yeah, so it's not really discriminatory. discriminatory. It's not discriminatory enough. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's listen to Sebastian Younger, who Jenny thought was going to be younger and more Sebastian, you lunatic. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful yeah, route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in the 
this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? Welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Sebastian, thank you for joining me on Under the Skin. You're welcome. I'm very, it's a great pleasure to be with you. Do you know what? Like Anyone who listens to this podcast or watches my content on YouTube or indeed attends my live stand-up shows will know that I'm a tremendous fan of your book, Tribe. I, I found it actually incredibly moving, the, the sort of the story that you top and tail it with. But the broad thrust of it is something that I cite and credit you for, you'll be pleased to know, in my stand-up show when I talk about like the... There's a bit where I'm, I'm obviously paraphrasing you to you, but when you say like if we were to design a, a civilization in order to create atomization, alienation, despair and ennui, you couldn't do a lot better than the one we're living in now. That's the sort of part that I focus on. And as you outline in your book, Tribe, it's sort of as a result of us kind of having strayed from our um, evolutionary conditions to a degree where we're living in a sort of almost in a kind of, I don't know, in a, an entirely synthetic environment. And I wonder... Um, well, really, I'm just letting you know that I've read your book and I know about it. That's not really a question there, is there? Let's be honest. <laughs> but I just want to let you know I appreciate your work and I think it's great. Well, listen, I appreciate you citing me. I, um, you know, I, I feel like I'm, I'm conveying a truth that we all intuitively know and I'm drawing on other amazing researchers uh, for my material. And so it's all, it's all part of a group effort, right, to make things a little better for people. So I really appreciate it. Sebastian, where does that understand the understanding understanding of human nature and human sociology that's um, in particular in the book Tribe position you politically? Like, who do you align? Where does that leave you on the rather narrow political spectrum of the United States or a country like mine, Britain? Where do where? yeah? Well, I you know, there's pretty good data that our political opinions are about fifty percent derived from our genetics, our hereditary, and about 50% derived from our influences in life. So I, I was brought up in a very liberal environment. And, um, uh, you know, I, I, I'm a Democrat in, in the United States. But as a journalist, I really am neutral. I make sure to be very neutral in the way I talk about things. I think both sides have their flaws and their merits. And um, what I try to do, as a friend of mine said, I try to, I try to do this. They, they, my friend said, Journalists don't tell people what to think. They, they tell people what to think about. And so what I, what I try to do is start a conversation with people where they can sort of evaluate uh, with intelligence and compassion the best way forward for the nation. That, that includes conservative voices, of course. They're, they're half the population. And it includes liberal voices. And I, try to, I just try to get people to think and act compassionately uh, compassionately and and as a and as a nation as a group we so humans are social primates we're so, a social species species we survive in groups or not at all and the group that we happen to be in right now in the united states is a group called america and we're either going to sink sink or swim on that basis given that one of the conclusions that could be drawn from tribe albeit reductively is that People seem to thrive in a community where there is a shared sense of purpose, most notably in your book, a military context where you say, I believe that many returning military veterans suffer when returning to 
call it ordinary life, not yeah. simply because of trauma endured in the combat, because, you know, there's a consistent level of trauma, even in um, uh, service folk who haven't seen combat and i believe in the book you go on to explain that this is likely because there's a sense of purpose cohesion and togetherness that is more in alignment with our evolution in those conditions than you would find in anatomized and disparate social setting like if that's a conclusion that you stand by and it certainly seems like a something that's obvious and true to me then are you not interested in sort of political solutions that go beyond the kind of broad and centralized um, remit of both Republican and Democrat politics? Yeah, I mean, there were, yes. Um, but the reality is we are living, Americans are living in a nation of 330 million. And if that larger entity collapses, the smaller entities of regions and towns and neighborhoods are going to struggle. And, um, you know, we're attempting to do something. We in uh, in you know quote modern society are attempting to do something very novel, which is to live in groups of many, many millions of people. Um, for most of human history, humans lived in groups of 30, 40, 50 people, uh, which happens to be about the size of a of a platoon in combat. Uh, that's a very natural group size for humans, and people worked humans worked very, very effectively at, in that sort of group size. As you grow the group it gets more and more unwieldy and more and more likely to split. And, you know, by the time you get to a group of 300 million, of course, there's enormous potential for conflict and splitting. Luckily, democracies are quite good at keeping things glued together. And so, but what I would say to answer your question more directly is that we need solutions at all levels. We need neighborhoods that are functioning in healthy ways. Uh, we need towns and regions that are functioning in healthy ways. And, and, in, and by healthy, I mean, in ways that are sort of consistent with our human evolution. Uh, things that feel good uh, often are um, adaptive in evolutionary terms and, and sort of group endeavors make people feel very, very good, even when they're in the context of a crisis like the Blitz in London or a hurricane or a tornado or what have you. Um, and so that's your, that's your clue. If it makes you feel good and if it feels meaningful and fills you with sort of good feeling. Um, then whatever you're doing is probably adaptive and healthy for both you and the community. And so I, I would argue at all levels, we have to think in commu communitarian ways. I agree with you. Isn't the entire premise of a sort of centralized sovereign system that there is a requirement for enforcement and control because without that centralized force, there will be disarray and um and violence and a lack of social cohesion right and in every group size there is a kind of centralized authority and at this group size of 30 40 50 people in our evolutionary past um or in some ways in a platoon or in on a life raft or what have you um peer pressure and group consensus effectively enforce group norms and if you're not willing to abide by them you're welcome to leave and and that's been the human norm for a very long time so when we start living in you know the sort of the modern industrial state basically what we've said is that there are such enormous benefits that coming from that, that come from living in a super organized industrial society there are such enormous benefits that we're willing to do it but that means we have to um, allow the state to control some aspects of our security 
at our sort of group decision making. And again, a democracy is one way to do it. And I think it's a fairly representative way. There's there are totalitarian states that take care of that problem in different ways. Um, but I think we can all agree that that democracy is probably the most moral of those, as long as you can really keep it a true democracy and one where everyone does have access to the ballot box and to a, a, a fair and 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 meaningful life and that's not always true in democracies and that's a that's a damn shame yes my concern in particular sebastian is that at this point we have strayed a considerable distance from those ideals and are in fact living in something akin to totalitarianism albeit a huxleyan version as opposed to an orwellian one where having supped heavily on the soma most people are happy to quibble over the minor differences between the in my view minor differences between the republican and democrat party while never engaging with the possibility that there are entirely new visions of society to yet be born that are not predicated on a progress and advance in the areas of technology and science but at the expense of progress elsewhere i mean sort of spiritually emotionally and in the quality of life i mean to your point about like the alienation and despair this in fact is one of the things that sort of informed my view somewhat yeah yeah i mean so first of all for the political parties they roughly break down along the lines of as i said the 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 data about genetics and so our concern you know conservative viewpoints and liberal viewpoints are partially genetically encoded in us and therefore clearly adaptive. So what you have in, in political parties is a reflection of our human evolution to some degree. So th- that sort of binary system is probably not going to go away because I think it's encoded in our, our, our human genetics. Um, but, you know, what I would say is that the right now, you're absolutely right. Uh, we are right. Um, if you look at modern society, there's a sort of surplus of amazing things, right? I mean, we can go to the moon, we can drive around in cars. Modern medicine is a nothing short of a miracle. My life was sh- saved a year and a half ago by the miracle of modern medicine. I had a, a, ruptured, a ruptured aneurysm that I didn't know about, and I almost bled to death internally, and I was saved. You know, in any other decade, practically, I'd be dead. Um, so many mir- miracles that come from this kind of society. Um, but... If you look at it in human terms, uh, many, many people are working at sort of mind-deadening jobs that are the same every day, hour to hour, day to day, for a sort of minimal economic uh, benefit. Um, And social ills are sky high. I mean, we have some of the highest rates of suicide and addiction uh, and depression and anxiety ever in human history. And these are the most, these are in the most affluent societies ever in human history. So clearly what we've created, the truly amazing thing that we've created in this society, there's a sort of underbelly to it, uh, you know, below the, the, the sort of part of the iceberg below the surface where there's an enormous amount of human anguish and suffering. And I think our society is reaching a kind of critical point where we're starting to wonder if it's worth, if it's worth the trade-off. And, I, you know, I think part of what's driving this, this era of discontent is the growing awareness of the growing income disparity in wealthy societies. And I think that on some level is into- morally intolerable to people. And they are starting to realize that it's a dead end that will really end in the dissolution of our society if we don't fix it. Yeah. 
Firstly, um, I'm glad you got better from that aneurysm. That sounds terrifying, and I'm glad that you are well. Um, Thank you. With your um, point about genetics, in a sense, I feel that um, that 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 whilst there are certain hot button and pr primal topics in the areas where these two political parties differ gun abortion you know capital punishment etc they were sort of like these are sort of very evocative topics for me the idea that they are sort of somehow inhered political ideologies rather than reflective just precisely of these sort of quite primal aspects of our nature and aside from that rather limited in terms of how they play out economically in the way in the kind of relationships the state will have for example with big corporations the limitations that are placed on ordinary people's power and ability to organize their own lives and um, i think i would um sort of disagree that they're representative of our deeper nature in that respect and i feel that the trade-off has changed this inequality that you mentioned in your last answer i think is as a result of the kind of uh, entropy at the heart of modern democracy that there is no um there is no ability to empower ordinary people beyond what i would regard a kind of gestural uh, participation in democracy yeah. through the through the ballot box and as chomsky says even all the su any subject that that both parties agree on you have no choice at all yeah no, listen we're we're in agreement i mean i would just there's a wonderful book it's on my bookshelf i can see it right now our political nature by avi tushman who goes into the and he's he's a brilliant man he's he's worth talking to okay that goes into the sort of genetic basis for some of this and and you know basically conservatism views outsiders with skepticism and alarm and uh genetic liberalism is focused on the sort of fair internal workings of the society and is more welcoming of outsiders there's just a very very basic breakdown that has been true throughout history in many, many societies. Like, do you view the, the primary threat as coming from outsiders, or do you view the primary threat as coming from the inside through inequality, right? Those are the sort of two breakdowns. And clearly, both, can, both are possible, both are potential threats. And when you have a society that's roughly half conservative and half liberal, you're attending to both, and you sort of toggle back and forth and wind up in a sort of commonplace where both threats are at least adequately addressed. And either either side would not uh, work by itself because it would leave the other threat unaddressed. So that's the um, sort of genetic logic for this. And when you look at a population, it breaks down very, very evenly between basic conservatives and basic liberals. So that's the, uh, and you can look into his book for the, for the facts and the data, but it's quite convincing. But But then to go on to democracy, yes, I mean, democracy takes care of this sort of problem where Europe, until, you know, a few hundred years ago was basically a very small, very powerful elite. And everyone else was essentially serfs, right, who had no legal rights, who couldn't vote, and they were economically oppressed. And democracy, you know, starting, you know, of course, with the French Revolution, the American Revolution, basically said, you know what, royalty doesn't, royalty does not have all the power. They are not outside the law. They cannot just run a country for as if it's their own personal um, their own personal company, right? It, 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 it's a country filled with people and they have equal rights. The, the rights of the commoners are equal to the rights of the, of the royals. Um, and if a royal commits murder, it's still murder, right? You still have to prosecute it. That was a very novel idea in 1776 uh, and then some years later with the French Revolution. And so, 
So that was, you know, d- democracy was the attempt to equalize, sort of equalize thing between all individuals. Of course, capitalism, um, you're going to see wealth accrue in, in the top 10% pretty quickly. And a, there's a lot of benefit that comes with capitalism. But one of the things that's really noxious is that if you're wealthy enough, you could, it seems as if you can kind of circumvent the rules that are meant for everybody. You don't quite have to pay all your taxes. And you don't quite have to serve in the military when there's a draft. Uh, and, you know, you can sort of cheat the system and and you can buy political office. And we all know how that works. Right. So that's democracy not functioning as it should. Mm. And that's to me, that's where the heart of the problem is. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. That sort of over time, oligarchies have emerged even in countries such as, as yours. Um, yeah. I saw some data today that sort of the top 1% of earners now have, or not necessarily earners, of wealthy people have as much wealth as the 60% uh, that was yeah. once considered the middle class. And of course, we're aware of the sort of famous statistics about the sort of the top 0.1% and yeah. the, the amount of wealth that has been accumulated there. And in a sense, when you described it in terms of sort of um, the origins of republicanism, uh, you know, through the French Revolution and the uh, American Revolution, I was struck by how it, the, it, with the Russian Revolution that, that began with such incredible and empowering ideals, there was a, a, a kind of, what do I want to say, a sort of uh, inertia towards a sort of a centralized statist kind of de facto monarchy like it recreated czarism ultimately under stalin in a way that albeit after rapid and massive industrialization kind of resembled the serfdom that preceded it almost as if there are some kind of archetypal imprints that realize themselves through time unless the checks and balances are pretty bloody assertive right absolutely and 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 you know the thing about a democracy is that there is recourse to the courts and the ballot box even though those aren't entirely fair systems but there they at least there's a chance of fairness and but what i would say in the united states which has done some in my opinion has done some things admirably well even in this country um, you have these very powerful families, right? The Koch brothers and the Kennedys uh, and the Clintons and the Bushes and then the Trumps, right? I mean, you know, we sort of dodged the bullet, but we could have wound up, you know, had Trump won a second term and sort of put all of his family members and loyals into positions of power. We really could have wound up with a family dynasty that we couldn't get rid of. I mean, that was not the point of democracy, right? The point of democracy was to get rid of that kind of thing. Um, and so, I, you know, I would, I'm not sure there's a better system than democracy. Maybe there is. I don't know what it would be. But that's not the point. The point is, how do you run a democracy in the, in the way that it was intended? You know, I happen to be an atheist. I'm not religious. My problem with religion isn't its teachings. It's that, that, that Christians seem to fail at those teachings. You know, if, they, if you know, people, religious people really abided by the most pure and original ideals, um, of what is, is called Christian behavior, uh, uh, love thy brother and all that, you know, then I might be more for it, but they, they seem to fail at those, as, at those ideals. And so I, you know, likewise with democracy, it's failing at its own terms. The problem isn't that it's democracy, is that it's actually failing to be enough of a democracy. In a sense, both of these institutions have reverted to a kind of 
dynamic as if magnetized by some invisible centralizing force that prioritizes the accumulation and dispatch of power above any uh, aesthetic ideals that they might like to display and ornament the ideology with. Um, yeah, well, personally, I'm getting very interested in the anarchism is what I'm sort of like uh, educating myself in. And, and it's precisely because of the way that it aligns with the, the evolutionary biology. Myself, yep. I, I do believe in God um, from in a sense, like not, no one wants to be bored with a person's personal perspective on theology, <laughs> but I'll, I'll do it quickly. Is it like yeah. that for me, it's a kind of a transcendent yet imminent experience of the divine and that consciousness may be a fundamental part of the universe as opposed to an evolved one. And that doesn't me place any uh, precedent on any particular ideology either totemic indigenous or monotheistic just an opportunity to celebrate divinity and the idea that we share something important and that our values are somehow innate and inhered rather than arbitrarily constructed and i have an optimistic perspective on human beings that we are essentially beautiful not essentially uh brutal although of course we are comprised of all of the entire palette of emotions that that uh, my belief is that if we do not have uh, the, a, a dominator state, that, that there is the possibility for different forms of organisation, that we, it wouldn't descend into sort of chaos and barbarism, but might descend into or ascend into some technologically advanced anarcho-primitivist version of, uh, the, you know, sort of ha how we lived for hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah, well, listen, I, it's a pleasure uh, listening to you speak. I got to say, as a writer, the way you um, formulate your thoughts is beautiful. And I, I could listen to it. I could listen to it for a lot longer than you just spoke for. Um, so, uh, you know, anarchy, as you I'm sure, you know, the sort of the, the original meaning, the real meaning of the word isn't sort of chaos and disorder and nihilism. It's basically localism. Right. I mean, they're basically saying local local communities run themselves well. And uh, and there's an there's a lot there's a lot of history to that. There's a lot of evolutionary um, uh, data about that. Like humans do extremely well, as I said, in in sort of local groups and small groups. And morality uh, essentially is you know the immoral act is the is the act that 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 jeopardizes the group's welfare and their safety. That's what immorality is: is jeopardizing the other people that you're with. Um, and 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 favoring your own interests, right? And so, um, there's a wonderful anthropologist named Richard Bohm who looked at. He has a book called Moral Origins, and he looked at how morality is um, uh, applied in indigenous small-scale tribal societies. You know, basically, if there were abusive leaders who were taking advantage, taking advantage of their position and abusing people and hoarding wealth and all that other awful stuff that we see in often see among leaders in modern society, um, there was a very, very quick solution to it. They were killed. Like the in, in indigenous groups, the most common reason for capital punishment for 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 um, for killing a group member, the most common reason was abuse of authority. Right. And. Right now, what I would say, look, I mean, I'm a Democrat in this country. Um, the Democrats have their own problems. I don't think they're sort of anti-democratic process in quite the way that the Republicans seem to be at the moment under Trumpism. Um, but look, both both groups, both sides, uh, both political machines are enormously corrupt. And there's a ghastly concordance between very, very wealthy people and corporations and these two political machines. And I think the left has a kind of veneer 
of morality about, oh, no, no, we wouldn't ever do that, would we? That's the Koch brothers and that's the Republicans. That's complete nonsense. The Democrats are just as corrupt as the Republicans, just maybe a little bit more coy about it. And I have an old, old friend, uh, an extraordinary woman I've known since I was four years old named Sarah Shays, C-H-A-Y-E-S, who wrote a book called On Corruption in America. And she goes into amazing detail about how corruption is uh, systemic within the political system. And I really, she's, you know, uh, she's, she could, that book could save our society. I mean, it's just not read widely enough, but it's an extraordinary book. And again, if I can recommend guests, I would have, if I were you, I'd have her on in a second. We will. On that recommendation, right. yeah, we'll get the yeah, we'll get the book and we'll we'll invite Ron. Thank you, thank you for the recommendation. And um, Sebastian, what do you think that the what kind of lens did the pandemic provide in terms of the way that it affected us culturally and socially? What do you think the impact of it might yet be? Do you think it will lead to any kind of political reform, any ideological reform? Do you think it will Im- ultimately impede and imp- Pinge upon human freedom, or do you think that there are elements of it that could be beneficial? Was it used to encroach upon people's personal freedoms? How, how do you feel about it? Yeah, well, it's a very you know it's a very complex thing. Nothing is all one thing or all another thing, right? And I would say that the pandemic made us very aware of um, what groups we were in. Like we had pods where we felt safe from. Um, from from disease, right? Our family and close friends, maybe, or a, a, you know, a group of families might form a pod so they could socialize with each other and not be and be safe from uh, exposure to germs. Well, that you know, that's a extremely. I mean, in evolutionary terms, not political terms, in evolutionary terms, that's a very conservative mindset, right? The uh, the, the the COVID pod, right? There's the, the in group, the people that we trust, and then there's everyone else that we have to be careful of and keep a distance from. So you can see where conservatism as an evolutionary matter can serve an extremely important survival purpose, right? As can liberalism. So just, to, just to make that point for a moment, right? And, but then we are running a society on a massive scale of hundreds of millions of people. And, you know, I think uh, Donald Trump, uh, and, and just, you know, in you know, full disclosure, I did not vote for the man. Uh, I wasn't thrilled with Hillary. But I, I voted for I did not vote for Trump. And, you know, I you know, I would so full disclosure. But, I, you know, what I would say is that he t- he took a look at covid and I think he decided not only is a pandemic a threat to his booming economy, but the, the, he thrived on the politics of division. And I think he understood that the more you can divide American society and energize the, the deeply conservative base, the more politically, the more he's going to benefit. And so what he did was he took he, he looked at a pandemic that was going to cost hundreds of thousands of lives, maybe by the by, you know, by, by the time it's all said and done, maybe even a million American lives. And he decided to politicize it uh, for his own political purposes, which I think is a deeply immoral thing to do. And it's the opposite of leadership. Of course, a leader, a leader puts himself or herself last. Right. True leaders, true leaders are willing to die for their people. And anything else is an opportunist. And he clearly was acting as an opportunist there. He politicized COVID. He made wearing masks political, uh, a uh, immunization political. And as a result, a lot, of, more, a lot more people died than, than needed to. And so right now, what do we have? We have a legacy of a traumatized nation, 
who saw an enormous number of deaths, that saw enormous number of deaths in the last year and a half. Um, and, and we are at the, at the macro level, we'll, we're so deeply divided that the, the nation actually may not survive politically or legally or culturally, socially, who knows? I hope it does. Um, but we also experience this awful thing where usually when there's a threat to the group, if you band together, that you can confront that threat more effectively. And I remember in my book, Tribe, uh, there was an uh, oral history of the Blitz in London. And there was a woman, a middle-aged lady in London, uh, right after World War II, who was interviewed during this project. And she said, you know, had the Germans showed up, we all would have, we all would have gone down, to the, gone down to the river, gone down to the beaches with broken bottles to fight them if we'd had to. She was talking about citizens, right? Enormous group unity during that threat. During COVID, the best thing you could do is keep your distance from people, from other people, right? Which is completely against our human nature when we feel threatened. So I think there was a sort of psychological um, uh, disconnect that it was extremely, extremely painful. People, um, they don't do very well in isolation, right? The worst thing you can do to a prisoner is put him in solitary confinement. Um, and that's essentially what the nation had to do for a year and a half. I think it was psychologically it was extremely destructive, and that destruction was amplified by the very poor and dishonest political leadership of the Trump administration. For my own full disclosure, of course, I'm, I'm um, you know, I've made very clear to, to my little audience that I'm not a fan of Trump or Republicanism or conservatism broadly, but but I save particular ire for the in efficacies of purported purported left-wing parties and their failings towards ordinary people and i would have to say that um that the subsequent administration's ongoing politicization of the issue and to offer like your critique of leadership to biden and indeed any politician really of the last 30 40 years i mean i can't think of anyone who you feel like well is this person going to lay their life down for what they believe in or is this another career politician who's ultimately interested in the maintenance of relationships between silicon valley big tech big government big pharma administrating in a manner that's all too familiar and i suppose i feel but personally because i've like would customarily would have identified with the left you know just from a bohemian and artist perspective now like uh I feel that there is a requirement for a kind of new populism and I feel that that the conditions that led to Trump are interesting and the conditions that have followed Trump are interesting and it for me shows that there is a sort of an appetite for real change and even though I believe that the change that was offered through Trump was rhetorical and incendiary as opposed to political and financial and he belongs to a sort of a, an ideology and a sort of a stable that's never going to meaningfully empower ordinary Americans I but because we have a comparable thing over here we had sort of like Brexit it wasn't sort of packaged around a figure but a sort of a movement that was somewhat isolationist and retro nationalistic and and like and I feel a kind of if not an affinity with the expression of that emotion I feel an affinity with that emotion and um, now what I want is to uh, advocate for a type of politics that is representative of the needs of what I would categorize or characterize as ordinary people without any 
condition placed upon their sort of racial, sexual, or religious identity, but a sort of a banding together in much in the spirit as you uh, that you described there, without you know that blitz. I mean, of course, I'm like not old enough to remember, but like I sort of in living memory, I had sort of grandparents and stuff that spoke about that time. And it seemed that there was a sense of a common enemy and something to stand up for. And I'm sure you could like tell that story very differently and point out sort of imperative, sort of uh, economic imperatives that were being pursued and colonial ideals and hypocrisies. But it seemed, yeah, that on some level the ordinary folk were pursuing something, something m meaningful there. And 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 a return yeah. to this is something that you know obviously without a bloody war and a holocaust and the concomitant nightmares that accompanied it is something that you know that for me seems important you know I, so this is a big you know this is a big request it's a big ask it's a big project but if you just theoretically if you wanted to sort of reform society and 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 i think it desperately needs reform right i mean i think uh we're, we're headed towards some very tough times if we don't start to live differently um at, you know, at every level. So there's a website that I found called Front Porch Nation, right? And basically, they, they're slightly conservative in, in a way that I sort of like, even though I'm a liberal, that I kind of like. Like, it's very smart, compassionate conservatism. But they're advocating for localism, communitarianism, you know, from a slightly conservative viewpoint. And it's so refreshing, right? It's fantastic. So if you could implement a kind of localism and communitarianism uh, and, you know, an anarchism at the local level, Right. Uh, and then if you could couple that with purging money and corruption from politics, how? I don't know, because politicians are not going to want to do that because they depend on that money. So how do you get them to do it? I don't know. But just theoretically, if you could do that, if you have localism coupled with clean, cleaning money out of politics and then finally making it a political sin to cast the, 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 the political opposition as an enemy of the state. I mean, that's where you start to get fascism, right? My father grew up in Spain, uh, and he fled when Franco came in. And what Franco did that Trump failed to do, Trump failed because he didn't have the military behind him. Franco did. And what he did was basically say the progressive coalition that won an election were enemies of the nation, right? They just weren't, well, they weren't politically on the other side of the fence of Franco, they were actually enemies of the nation of Spain. And therefore, they could be gotten rid of by any means necessary, including killing them, right? So that kind of rhetoric where you cast your political opponent as an enemy of the state opens up a can of worms that really leads towards fascism. And so if you did those three things, localism, and you got money out of politics, and, and you... Um, so heavily sanctioned that kind of contemptuous, aggressive speech from politics that it it, it paid negative div dividends politically, I think you could save our modern democracies, right? So just to move on from, from what you said, that to me, in, in short version, is what we would need to do. I've written them down. I've written down those ideas. Awesome. Like, because <laughs> <laughs> I've got big plans, Sebastian. Um, but I love what you said about the, the removal of contempt. That should not be part of the discourse. Once you have contempt for another person, it's the beginning of legitimization of persecution and even yep. e execution. Uh, I, I think what you're saying about localism is vital, that most people, as you know, if you, we've discussed, live lives where they feel alienated and, and purposeless. And I feel that fit, engagement with your community is absolutely vital. And I would add once more that the the sort of centre-left media machine did a lot of 
what do I want to say, vilification of like what you might call ordinary Trump voting folk as well. Like they were just a machine. Like, you know, and like one of the things that I was uneasy about is like, this is nearly half the population. What's going on? Like there's, this can't be, even John yeah. Stewart, I know he's clearly a liberal man. And I would, again, that's the, if I had to pick a side, it wouldn't be the Republicans, I have to say. But like, you know, even John Stewart was saying, there's an infatuation with Trump and Trumpism and it's sort of being like, you know, because of for all sorts of crossing vectors, like the, the stuff on the CNN's a media entertainment company. There's the media does well when they talk about Trump. You can see him sort of needing yeah. to talk about Trump because, yeah. oh, shit, otherwise it's banal. Our content is banal without this sort of yeah. evocative figure that, that, that they sort of hanker after and loathe and, and are sort of conflicted about. But. Yeah, I, I feel you. Those are some great principles. Localism, money out, the end of lobbying, and a sort of a kind of a commitment to end contempt. One of the things that I sort of I got from like a, a man called Luke Kemp, who's a sort of a, a, a sort of a, a doctor and an academic around existential crises of all things. He talked about how like the the, the the globally emergency measures have been introduced around the pandemic that are. Have you not yet haven't been repealed yet, and it's possible well, we won't ever see repealed, and that these emergency measures are frequently harbingers of tyranny, and he even cited that the Weimar Republic prior to the rise of national socialism was introducing a lot of these emergency measures, and sort of even Napoleonic or immediately pre-Napoleonic France, and you know I think that these I think that this problem is bigger than any individual bigger than both parties and requires a kind of a fundamental almost universal address of what our values are really because i think that we actually live within an ideology that's much more expansive than what we're being offered that is a sort of a fundamentalist consumer capitalism yeah. that does not abate regardless of which one of those parties flips in like obviously that that system could withstand trump it withstood trump it can withstand biden it withstood him it can withstand any, like what it clearly didn't like the look of was Sanders what it, and like and I had like Marianne yeah. on here Marianne Williamson and I go do you yeah. think that the Democrat party would rather would have rather lost uh, to, with Clinton and had Trump than won with Bernie Sanders and she said that, oh my that is what she felt <laughs> that, happened yeah well thanks thanks for the easy question yeah I mean I, well <laughs> but my friend Sarah Shays who I mentioned uh, on corruption in America she she would she would absolutely say that the left is so in bed with corporations that they would actually enjoy, rather enjoy Trump for four years than have the fig leaf stripped away. Uh, I mean, the left is horribly elitist. They're enormously wealthy. They are not, um, they are not for the common man, the common person. I mean, they used to be, right? I mean, there was you know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, the left wing was very, very solidly pro-labor, right? And it was a working class party and they were for the common man and they ceded that territory to the Republicans that then horribly misused their responsibility to the common man, right? So now nobody is standing up for that person. And uh, so, you know, I would, I would say that someone like Bernie Th Sanders is enormously threatening to the establishment of both parties. I also found that some of his policies, although enormously admirable, to the extent that I looked into them, I was sure he had quite like, you know, done the done the numbers and figured the you know you know figured the numbers out sufficiently to implement these wonderful policies 
you know, like without raising taxes, which is sort of, uh, you know, politically, you know, a death sentence. So I'm, I'm not quite sure he actually had the answers, but he certainly had the ideas. He certainly had the ideals. Um, and I think they were, I mean, Sarah for sure would say, oh, totally threatening to the left wing. And they would never, they would never back someone like Bernie Sanders. He's just, he's going he's going to take their money and they don't want, they don't mm. want that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause when looking at where their sort of economic resources are for meaningful social change, you don't even have to impede the, the middle class anymore. Now you're talking about a sort of a tiny percentage of the population being meaningfully yeah. taxed, even if you want to operate within right. a sort of a centralized statist model. Um, so, uh, Hey, do you want your book about freedom, your new book? What's yeah. it about? Yeah. yeah. So thank, thank you for, for the opportunity. Yeah. So, so I wrote a book called Freedom. Uh, you know, my last book was called Tribe. And one of the things I found interesting about Tribe was that, you know, basically one's community is something that many people throughout history have been willing to risk their lives for, to defend their own people. It's an enduring human value. And I sort of cast around mentally in my mind, what are other things people are willing to, to risk their life for? And freedom is one of those things. I mean, it, 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 uh, and particularly freedom for one's own people. And it's a um, mere survival in a subjugated state is often not, is, is thought to not be worth the, the going through. Like many, many cultures, many societies throughout many eras of history have preferred to risk annihilation and death rather than live under subjugation. So freedom is a paramount human virtue, uh, human value, and, and, and has been so for, for many, many millennia. And so I wanted to understand it. And the interesting thing about humans is that a smaller combatant, a smaller individual, or a smaller group is actually able to maintain their autonomy is able to defeat a larger group or a larger individual. Uh, and that is not true for any other species. Only in humans can a smaller individual defeat in one-on-one -on -one combat a larger individual, and a smaller group likewise can maintain their autonomy in the face of a larger group. So for example, uh, the, the Montenegrins in the 1600s were a wild mountain people in the mountains of Montenegro. And the Ottoman Empire, which was the dominant military force of the era, um, invaded Montenegro multiple times, and their forces outnumbered the Montenegrins 12 to 1, right? They had cavalry, they had artillery, uh, and they outnumbered them 12 to 1, and the Montenegrins kept defeating them, right? That would not be, the equivalent would not be possible, say, in our closest human relatives, the chimpanzees, right? There in, in chimpanzee society, might makes right. So what I wanted to figure out with my book, Freedom, is how do humans do this? Like, how do we maintain our autonomy in the face of a more powerful foe? And, uh, you know, it's true in mixed martial arts, a smaller combatant can defeat a larger one. It's also true in history. And so they're basically the three main ways. And my book is divided into these three sections, run, fight, and think. And they sort of the, 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 the most obvious way to maintain your autonomy is to run away from the larger sort of cumbersome force. The Taliban managed to use their mobility to defeat the most powerful military ever in human history, the U.S. military. Uh, as we all know, the U.S. left some months ago from Afghanistan, essentially defeated. Um, the Taliban didn't have an air force. They didn't have artillery. They didn't have tanks. Some of them didn't have boots, and they still defeated us. A uniquely human outcome, right? Uh, the Apache in the American Southwest 
maintain their autonomy, while the Pueblo societies, the much wealthier sedentary Pueblo societies, folded to the Spanish immediately, the Apache maintained their autonomy for several hundred years simply by being more mobile than, than, than white society. Uh, but if you can't outrun them, you're going to have to outfight them. And I looked at how the dynamics of combat allow for a smaller entity to actually defeat a larger one. Uh, larger individuals, larger armies go through, more re go through resources at a much faster rate than smaller ones. And basically, if the smaller, smaller fighter, smaller boxer, the smaller MMA fighter or the smaller uh, uh, insurgency can just not lose for long enough, eventually they will win because the larger adversary will just run out of will, will run out of resources. And finally, within one's own society, how do you, how do you implement reform when the, the established powers, the government, the corporations, the police, the state police, the National Guard are arrayed against you? Say in the, in the um, labor movement in this country, in America, a hundred or so years ago, <clears throat> how do you defeat those established powers and implement you know, fair reforms to, to, to your circumstances. Um, they managed to do it through thinking. They outthought their opponents. And, you know, just as an example of using that sort of chess game thinking against the, the, the powers that be, uh, in Lawrence, Massachusetts, there was a, a, a mill strike. Um, these were mostly immigrant labor, many who, of whom didn't even speak English who were arrayed against the, the National Guard with fixed bayonets and the entire power structure. And they wanted a fair wage and safe working conditions and a host of other things that were entirely reasonable and human. And the powers that be were not willing to give it to them. And what they did was they incorporated, among other things, they incorporated women into their ranks in the fight for fairness and justice. And literally on the street in protest, they put women in the front row in the front ranks and the women faced off with the National Guard with fixed bayonets, as, as one police sergeant said in, in despair, in frustration. He's because the, these young guys in the National Guard, they were not willing to kill women. Killing men is a little easier to do. Killing women uh, comes with all kinds of uh, political and social implications that, that, that e even young soldiers with fixed bayonets do not want to deal with. And this police chief said, one good cop can handle 10 men, but it takes 10 cops to handle one woman. Um, and in addition, women have lateral networks of affiliation. Men are very good at top-down hierarchies, right? Which is important when you're charging machine guns. You want, you want a top-down hierarchy for that, right? But women work laterally and lateral networks are very, very hard for authorities to penetrate. You know, likewise with insurgencies and terrorist groups, they work laterally and it works very, very well. It's hard to penetrate, hard to decapitate, right? So they incorporated women um, into, their, into their rebellions. You know, I looked at Ireland's um, uh, uh, in 1916, around the same era. And, you know, one of the, they, they defeated the, one of the primary military powers of the world, the British Empire, right? They, they outthought them. They outfought them and outthought them. And eventually Ireland got their independence. Um, and one of the ways they did that was by using women. And another way was by having leaders. And this, you know, I tried to look at the common elements in successful underdog victories, uh, in successful underdog groups, which are the ones that succeed, right? In, in business, in revolution, in insurgencies. And one, one of the most common attributes of the successful underdog groups 
was the leaders that are willing to die for the cause, that are willing to die for their people, right? And uh, I mean, there was a there was a in, there was a, a rebel leader in Dublin in 1916 named Connolly, incredibly brave guy, right? And the biggest problem his aides had uh, with him was dragging him out of the out of gunfire because he was constantly at the front, sort of looking at what the best tactics were. And bullets were hitting all around him. He was wounded twice, right? And his aides were constantly begging him to protect himself because he was needed, right? And eventually, you know, within a few days, that a couple of weeks, that it failed, and um, and and the and the Brits um, executed by firing squad about a dozen Irish rebels. But eventually, some years later, the the it, it, the, the Irish Irish separatists won, um, and. Uh, so, so what you need is leaders that are not opportunists, right? Leaders that are willing to accept the same risks and the same outcomes and, and the same uh, uh, hardships as the people they lead. And that's, that's one place where I see modern, you know, Western democracies failing miserably. Very clearly, our political leaders are not willing to undergo uh, any hardship whatsoever, any political risk whatsoever, but for a few exceptions. Um, you know, I would say what Liz Cheney is doing, you know, a woman I, in other circumstances probably wouldn't vote for, but what Liz Cheney is doing in confronting the, the Republicans about Donald Trump's role on January 6th, I think is, you know, is sort of in some ways an example of a political leadership that is willing to die for the cause, right? She is uh, in some ways committing sort of political suicide on, on a principle. And that principle is that, you know, you can't subvert the democracy the way Donald Trump tried to, regardless of what party you're in. You have to object to it. And so I really admire her, although I disagree with some of her politics. Sometimes when you see transcendent values at work, and it seems that those are what you were describing, you know, I suppose one way of considering transcendent values might be the willingness to put aside the ordinary conditions of survival, the priority for an animal, don't die pass on genes not necessarily in that order i suppose probably in the reverse order as long as the genes have been passed on um so like when someone has ideals that is in a sense a kind of um it's holy you know it's sublime in some sense that we are that those people are resourcing themselves from something other than you know this is why i suppose the charge or why the hypocrisy burns you know to sort of reference our earlier conversation left v right i have no expectations of the right the right's out there it's about the individual it's about the individual select group you know family a set of ideals human beings are essentially selfish let's pursue those goals you got to facilitate that survive you know so mismanaged um critiques and understandings of darwinism and therefore social darwinism whereas the obligation of the left in my, in my view and these are sort of my own sort of terms is to be fair in a sense you know and particularly being british there is a common aphorism that british socialism owes as much to uh who, who do they say um like they say, owes as much to sort of, um, gosh, as as much to Methodism as to Marx. That you know that it kind of, in a sense is Christian ideas in the sense, and I mean Christian values such as love, oneness, service, kindness, togetherness. Like you know these kind of ideas, rather than subsequent ecclesiastical administrative ideas, and God, let alone the crazy stuff of the Catholic Church. I mean, like so. 
you know, in many of those examples that you cited, is I think all of us are inspired. We're touched, though, like just listening to like, yeah, the I was cheering on the nation of Montenegro there against the Ottoman Empire, even though I've never thought about Montenegro before. And the the the, the very idea of like I was struck as well when you, that you sort of were looking at it on an individual as well as collective basis. Um, you know that brilliant book Trickster makes the world. It talks about like uh, the god Hermes is uh, the sort of like, you know, the Greek incarnation of the tricks of the God and the, 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 he attacks the joints, the joints between day and night. Yeah the liminal spaces, the weaknesses, i.e. that's a kind of, it's a trickster move to put the women up the front there, like in that movement. That's like, ah, here's a key here go. Don't change that rule. Be willing to break that rule of like, oh, it's a male domain. Um, and also I was struck by as a, as a practitioner of jujitsu that jujitsu is about attack the joints, attack the joints. This is where there is weakness at the elbow, at the neck, at the knee, at the ankle, at the wrist. These are places where where there is vulnerability. Uh, uh, again, between day and night, between administrations, there are kind of these points of where change becomes possible. But if you don't know that your leaders, you know, if they're not Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Gandhi, and the, the countless other sort of civil rights leaders that have demonstrated their willingness by virtue of the fact that they have ultimately been martyred you know if you're not being led by them if you're being led by people saying i don't really care about this actually the system i just feel like i'd prefer to be in the position of dominance myself rather than being in the position of subjugation you know this is why i see a lot in modern politics we don't like being the bullied group and we will we'll do some bullying now and we'll like, well yeah. is it we are we against bullying or not What's the, or is it just the, the, the words that you say while you're doing it? You know, what, that, this is what disappoints me. No real values, no real ideals. And this is why, again, I suppose it's an opportunity for us to perhaps talk a little about atheism because you're, of course, as you've said, you're an atheist. And like for me, the, these spiritual values, I'm not saying you need a sort of some sort of patriarchal or any inflection of a deified figure in order to have values. But I, I sometimes consider in a sort of C.S. Lewis way that the values themselves are an indication of something other than mere survival, mere survivalism. And perhaps did you not think when writing the book Freedom that the many examples of heroism you encountered and in fact the three figures that I listed all are, you know, underwrote their political philosophy religiously and from a religious perspective that of value rather than, you know, wouldn't it be good if I was in charge? And uh, I, I wonder how often you found that there were, that there were religious ideals at play uh, in many of these David Goliath stories that you tracked in your new book. Yeah, well, you know, if you add a, 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 a religious um, gloss over a, a social movement or over um, your group's interests, of course, it, it, it just helps validate it. And, um, you know, what I would say is that the 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 very very good values of uh, religion, the moral human values of religion, are an outgrowth of much more ancient human values, right? And they actually survival human survival depends on those values. It's not that it, there's like human survival on the one hand, and then like communitarian and Christian and religious values on the other hand. They actually need each other. Right, They're, humans do not survive alone in nature. They die immediately. Right, we survive because we're part of a group, and if you're going to be part of a group, you're going to have to very quickly deal with a group morality that um, tries to integrate individual interest and group concern. 
So as an individual, you want a certain amount of latitude to pursue your own interests, your own concerns, your, your own freedom within the group, right? But you can't do that to such a degree that you jeopardize the group that you're in that you depend on, right? And neither do you want to be just an automaton in a group where everyone is doing exactly the same thing and just serving a group ethos. Like that's ghastly also, right? And uh, so we, human evolution is the integration of individual interests and group interests. And that integration is achieved through morality. And that morality where the, in, the individual has to value the gr group welfare in some ways above all things because their own, your, your survival depends on that group, right? That morality is ancient and gets encoded as religious values once the monotheistic religions started, right? But th those monotheistic religions are incorporating values that way predate, predate them. So, you know, the parable of the Good Samaritan, of course, predates Christianity, right? I mean, that parable was in existence before Christ was born, right? So, so there we, and I, I stole that from Christopher Hitchens, so you, you can look it up, but, but the, uh, you know, very clearly that those amazing moral values that keep society alive uh, and cohesive and, and fair, fair-minded, uh, that those predate the advent of religion. And in fact, religion draws heavily on them as well it should. Yes, and many of the sort of motifs and ideals are sort of yeah, identifiably um, predate those religions. And but I feel that sort of in the what there is in the Gospels, much of it, you know, a sort of a Gnostic interpretation of the much of what Christ says, for me, is very much at odds with you know everything that followed it in the, in His name, um, you know, like. Jesus, what was I reading yesterday? So just the kind of like that, you know, the kingdom of heaven is spread upon the earth, that the, the, the kingdom of heaven is within. It feels like for me, my interpretation of these ideals is that we are talking about consciousness, the phenomena of awareness that, the, the you know, my father and me are one. The idea that conch be to be aware, this sort of miracle of personal autonomy, uh, this this experience that we are having now is inseparable from the divine and like the the sort of the the necessary reductivism required for any story particularly obviously one conveyed by the the models that language provides us within its limitations right. are gonna we're gonna lose veracity unless it's in the hands of you know, people that are really really skilled in those areas i was thinking the earlier part of your last answer that, that the values are not ornamental then they, these they're not sort of uh, emblematic virtues with which we adorn our ideology they are the ideology that they are survival strategies in themselves become yeah. good be, be of service not because it's nice not because we're trying to get a pat on the back on sesame street from big bird but because this is a survival strategy they are called values because they are valuable not just for the individual, but for the entire culture. And if you let go of those things, if you lose those things, if it, like there are there are great warnings, you know. And I think it talks about it in in tribe, and evidently it's a, a, a theme you continue to develop in freedom. That when leadership or when leadership becomes about self preservation and opportunism, we kind of smell it, and it's like this ain't this ain't. Right. I'm not into this. I'm not gonna. Why should I go to my death for this? Why should I shave my legs yeah. for this? For God's sake. <laughs> well, 
Yeah, absolutely. And and you know what I would say is is that if you look at the at the at the sort of group expectations in a group of say 30, 40, 50 people in a, in a dangerous circumstance, a platoon in combat, right? If you, I've been in a lot of combat uh, around the world and with the U.S. military, and you know basically you know the one thing is if you're if there's a soldier that stands behind another soldier during a firefight because he's scared of the bullets. That's that's not moral behavior within the context of combat within the platoon, right? Whatever you think about the war, you're like, hey, man, you you like, I'm I'm risking my life and shooting back. You got to do that too, or you're not part of this group, right? This sort of basic human morality that you that you don't hide from the group responsibility to serve your own interests, right? And and so if you look at what morality would be within a small survival group. A, a, a hunter-gatherer group 100,000 years ago, you share your food, right? You don't hide, hoard food, hide food. You don't depend on the efforts of others and become a freeloader. You, you contribute, right? And you're prepared to sacrifice for your little band of uh, uh, brothers and sisters and children, right? Um, once you have large-scale society, you know, agriculture started about 10,000 years ago. And all of a sudden, humans were not living in groups where morality could be monitored and enforced by, you know, groups of, of familiar people, right? In a group of 30 or 40 people, you don't need laws. You don't need God. That morality is patrolled, is monitored by all the people you know, right, around you that you depend on. But once you're living in groups that are large enough that you're among strangers, so in the early cities 10,000, 8,000 years ago in Mesopotamia, there are groups of, you know, the cities were 40, 50,000 people, Right. So you were living amongst strangers. So there's a brilliant thesis, I can't remember the, the, the researcher's name, that monotheism with an all-seeing, all-knowing, punitive God, that arose with agriculture because they had to deal with a situation where peer pressure was not sufficient to produce good behaviors in people because the, you could be anonymous in the society. You could get away with things and no one knew who, who you were. But if God saw all things and punished bad behavior, all of a sudden you're not anonymous anymore. And that monotheism with its strict morality arose to counter that problem of anonymity in a society. Now we live in, in an anonymous society that is, has been largely stripped of its religiosity, right? It, we, we live in largely secular societies. So what took its place? And I don't mean this uh, in a glib way or sarcastically, um, CCTV took its place, right? On every corner, there is a, a video camera. And I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm, I, I'm agnostic about it. But the truth is that in, say, in London and, uh, and in a lot of parts of New York, it is very, very hard to get away with any wrongdoing without it being caught on some kind of video camera. And you are tracked down. I mean, that's how they got the London uh, Subway bombers, the Metro bombers, the underground bombers in 2004, I think it was. You remember that horror show, right? They caught those guys because they caught them on CCTV cameras with their backpacks, their bomb, with their bombs. And uh, so they caught one of those guys. And uh, so that, in my mind, has sort of supplanted monotheism. And, you know, society is always going to have to figure out how to regulate bad actors who are interested in taking the advantages of the system without contributing to it. Yeah, that's beautiful. I like that you draw so much from combat, obviously as, um, obviously as a result of your professional 
the experiences, but also, I suppose, because of the intensity, broadly speaking, of uh, conflict situations and how it calcifies and reveals true nature. I suppose, you know, like as with storytelling, you know who the hero is when you apply pressure to the hero. What like I once from a Bob McKee, who's a sort of a writing guru type guy, actually, he says character and story are the same thing because the story is the decisions the character makes. What does the character do when the when the pressure is applied? Does the does he hide behind a fellow Marine or does he stand his ground or their ground? You know, so, um, yeah, that's that's cool, man. Sebastian, it's so lovely to talk to you. I, I, I'm going to read your new book. I, I love your previous work and it's uh, and we're going to get you your recommended guest it's a real education and a joy to speak with you thank you oh thank you my pleasure it was a real pleasure having a conversation like this i i, I needed it and, uh, <laughs> oh, and if you yeah oh absolutely i um and you you have you have a wonderful mind and I've, I've really enjoyed engaging with it and if you um you know if you have trouble if you need help reaching the people that i referenced let me know because they're you know i have their emails i'm friends with them oh yeah so we'll just get reach them. out yeah, we'll do that. We will. We'll email you yeah. about it, Sebastian. And I'd love to. I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to talk to you more. I'll maybe send you an email because there's lots of areas of your expertise that uh, interest me deeply. Wonderful. I look forward to it. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Thanks, man. Take care. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin, a podcast from the Luminary Network made by me, Russell Brand. Remember to, why don't you go meditate right now? What are you doing that's more important than getting in contact with the divine essence within you that's your source of true, true power? If you want to talk to me, you can on Instagram or on Twitter or any of those things. All of them. We'll be on Rumble soon. That'll be good. You can come and see me in Reading if you want to. And uh, that's it, really. Anyway, if you enjoyed that podcast, Ed Stafford, why? Um, tribe, like tribe stuff. But tribe, tribe. Stuff. Why not Bruce Parry who did a show oh, called Tribe? Oh, I almost did. But then I thought that was too obvious. No, <laughs> you never thought too obvious. I did, so obvious. I changed him with Matthew McConaughey. You'll be fantasising about, oh, Matthew McConaughey's the other one. Because I thought they seemed like they had the same vibe. Ed Stafford and Matthew McConaughey. Ed Stafford's survivalist and Sebastian Unger was out travelling with his four friends. All right. And camping. Hey, guess who I'm going to see soon? Nick Hayes from the book Trespass because he happens to be... Is Robert going to be there? No, but I've said Robert came and saw me in Cambridge and he sent me the most lovely message that I actually saved. You mean he starred it? No, it was a voice message. and I, uh, You know how they disappear? Well, I saved it because I wanted to have it forever because at the end he said, you're a genius. And I thought, I want that forever, forever. I'll play it, but it's a private message really. But yeah. so I suppose it would be both narcissistic and indiscreet. Yeah. Which are two words that are often used <laughs> describing me. All right. So listen, watch the YouTube video we did with Matthew McConaughey. Watch out for some great videos coming up this week. Some really funny ones. The one about Nurse Robot is very funny. Isn't it, Gal? Yeah. And what's that one that's funny? Oh, the one about be beagles being experimented on. As, oh. as anyone would realise how funny that would be just from the subject. <laughs> All right. Thanks very much for listening to us on Under the Skin. From Luminary. <laughs>